Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. How are you? How was the big 13th birthday celebration? I want to hear it all. Okay. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Okay. She woke up, told us we could give her one hug the day of the day, and we gave her one hug. It was it was very very low key per her instructions, but it was a nice day. It was nice, quiet. Um, But the weekend in general was kind of busy, and I don't know if you remember why, Mandy. What was going on this weekend? Well, I think I think we did something. Did we do something oh, my, this is past it, weekend? Okay. Are you passing it back to me? <laughs> I'm passing it back to you, okay. Melissa. <laughs> this weekend, well, last week we were invited to be on Yasmin's show on MSNBC, like an actual TV show, and we were part of their Spotlight segment, and we spoke a little about the Vicki Robinson story um, that we talked to you guys about a few weeks ago, and it was wild. It was live TV. We've never done that. We've never yeah. been on actual TV. and No, it was it was probably one of the craziest things that's ever happened in my life. Yeah, being on live television. Definitely a crazy experience. We are so um, excited and thankful that we got to do that. Yes, we'll have the link in the show notes if you want to watch my neck 
literally change colors with <laughs> a six minute segment. I was like a beat by the time it was over. Um, but it was so cool and it was wild to be on like live television. Like I, it just did not compute to me. Like just having somebody come into your earbud and, you know, say like, all right, can you move over an inch? You know, can you do this? It was a whole thing. We'll have to go into it more on Patreon because I have yeah. some funny stories about it. Um, oh, I, I fully blacked out. I mean, I um, after I watched back the clip after we were finished, first of all, I had no idea that we were there for six minutes. It felt I know. Like 45 seconds. And then I basically remembered nothing that we said. So <laughs> No, the first question, I had no idea. Somebody said, I really loved your first answer. And I was like, I don't remember that question. I have no <laughs> clue what happened. <laughs> So it was very, it was, it was wild. So if you haven't seen it, we'll put it in our show notes. It was such a privilege to be able to do that and just a really cool thing. And now whenever we take those Facebook quizzes that say, have you ever been on live TV? Like, you know, we for points. Say, yeah, uh, yeah we, we've got it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was super fun. My husband's uncle, Dennis, he wrote to me and was like, oh, it was great, but you guys didn't talk about the weather. And I was like, you oh. definitely <laughs> listened to the show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we didn't have a choice. We just kind of went through went through the motions there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we'll get into um, the story for this week. Um, we don't really need a huge introduction to grab your attention for this week. All I probably have to say is that Hugh Hefner makes an appearance in the story, and everybody will just keep listening to find out why Hugh Hefner <laughs> makes an appearance on a true crime podcast. I'm going to date Melissa and I with this one, but the story this week actually happened before either of us was born, in a time where roller disco parties existed and kids were literally entertained by keeping a rock as a pet. Telephones were attached to the wall, Stephen King's career was just beginning, Ted Bundy was on the loose, and Playboy magazine hit its peak success selling 7.2 million copies in November of 1972. But the success of the magazine itself wasn't the only thing that put Playboy in the spotlight in the 70s and early 80s. The murder of a Playboy bunny also made headlines and drew interest about what happened to 20-year-old Dorothy Stratton. Playboy magazine has been around for quite a long time. It was Hugh Hefner's vision to create a magazine that featured what he called the girl-next-door type, but he also wanted it to feature content with substance. As the old joke goes, Playboy is really famous for its articles and interviews, not the other thing. Its very first issue debuted in December of 1953, with Marilyn Monroe featured on the cover, and the brand took off from there. And this is how naive Mandy of the Moms and Murder podcast is. Tell me how I had no idea that Marilyn Monroe was the very first cover model on Playboy. You I knew she was one, though, right? I, I knew that she was one at a time, but I did not know okay. she was the first one. I think that's okay. Is I that think fair? I yeah yeah yeah. I I don't think that's like the most well-known fact or anything. You're oh, good. okay. You're good. Okay. All right. Um so Playboy then became more than just a magazine. Hugh Hefner built an empire that included private key clubs with bunny cocktail waitresses that all shared a similar set of features, one being blonde hair. From the time the first issue was released until the early 70s, the magazine increased in popularity, selling millions of copies each year. With the demand for content so high, Playboy was constantly on the hunt for beautiful new models to feature in one of their 11 issues each year. In the 1970s, Playboy would even pay a $1,000 finder's fee if somebody discovered a future playmate. Ugh. I know, I hate that. That is the grossest thing. I hate uh, that. I, I hate that so much. Um, but this is actually how a strikingly beautiful young woman named Dorothy Stratton eventually came to find her way to the cover of Playboy magazine. 
Before we get into more about Dorothy, we want to take a second to acknowledge that much of the story is really centered on Dorothy's physical appearance. We're talking about Playboy here, but it's relevant to the unique story and experiences working in this specific field. So we're going to be talking a little more about external beauty than we would in a normal everyday Moms and Murder episode. Dorothy Ruth Hoogstraten was born in Vancouver in early 1960. Her parents, Nellie and Simon, divorced when she was young, and she was raised by her mom on her farm with her two siblings, Louise and John. Dorothy was a pretty shy kid who kept to herself, and she wasn't really interested in dating or boys and really never got into the party scene. In fact, she was extremely responsible for a teenager. She even took a job at the Dairy Queen when she was 14 years old so she could help her mom pay the bills. Although Dorothy wasn't superficial or really concerned with the opinions of others, as she got older, and especially after she went through puberty, she started noticing that people paid more attention to the way she looked. Without getting too disrespectful here, Dorothy allegedly had Sir Mix-a-Lot's perfect measurements, 36, 24, 36, and no, she wasn't 5'3". <laughs> At 5'9 and 120 pounds, Dorothy's slender but curvy physique was turning a lot of heads by the time she was 18. But as we said before, Dorothy didn't really think of herself as being sexy or attractive, and that really wasn't even an aspect of herself that she spent time focusing on. Instead, she really liked the simple things in life, like poetry, baby animals, and Barry Manilow. It is, after all, the 60s and the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> so her favorite foods were steak and lasagna, two very polar opposite things for me. One I could eat every day and one would make me gag and, <laughs> and she could spend hours watching her favorite tv shows like mork and mindy and the gong show she enjoyed her more simple life on the farm with her family where she had plenty of time to read her favorite books and to watch her favorite movies in early 1978 dorothy was newly 18 and still in high school but still also working at the same dairy queen that she'd been working at for the last four years one day, a 26-year-old man named Paul Snyder and his friend walked into the ice cream shop and noticed Dorothy, and in a moment, her life changed forever. Paul was, to put it really nicely, pretty full of himself. He also grew up in Vancouver in a rougher part of town. The Village Voice newspaper described the East End as a tough area of the city steeped in machismo. I'm not really sure what that means. But it sounds um, pretty tough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, although it does kind of give me a, is it West Side Story? The, um, yeah, yeah. the snapping? That's, that's how I read that, but I don't think that's what they mean. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so Paul's parents divorced when he was young, and he suffered through some of the emotional turmoil that came with it. Paul developed an almost obsession with himself. He spent time working out, bodybuilding, grooming himself. He took a lot of pride in his dark hair and his mustache and really just was in front of the mirror primping all the time. Paul's top two missions in life were to make money and get women. And I saw a photo of this guy, and he definitely looks exactly like you would expect. A hundred percent. If you just Google his name, close your eyes, open them, and it's exactly what you thought. It's exactly what you're thinking, yes. Since Paul had dropped out of school in the seventh grade, he had to be extra creative as an adult when it came to finding work. He became a promoter of automobile and cycling shows at the Pacific National Exhibition, and one of his things was that he would hire former Playboy playmates or bunnies to work at these shows that he promoted. Sometimes he would even try to scout new talent for Playboy. He would find women that he thought would make a good playmate, and then he would try to promote them to Playboy so that he could collect his $1,000 finder's fee. Again, gross. But... 
he was never successful at this. So that actually seems <laughs> like a lot of work too. To like yeah, for a thousand dollars. Yeah, maybe we're just not thinking. We got to get our head into the seventies. I 70s guess so. Movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But lucky for him, even though that didn't work out, his business as a promoter was decent enough to survive on. But still, Paul wanted more. He had champagne taste on an Arbor Mist budget. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so Paul started running what was essentially an escort service. He would find attractive young women who he would then pimp out as a side hustle. And Paul definitely didn't keep a low profile either. He drove a flashy car, a black Corvette, He wore animal fur, and he had a jewel-encrusted Star of David that he wore around his neck. The people around town called him, quote, the Jewish pimp, and this was a nickname that he really embraced. He thought it was great, and that's what he was. Paul was not popular or well-liked at all. I can't imagine why. Can't see why not. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) A local gang in Vancouver um, that was called the Rounder Crowd actually had a particular beef with Paul because evidently he owed them a lot of money in 1977. He had borrowed some money from some of the rounder crowd loan sharks, and he hadn't repaid them. So they ended up finding Paul and hanging him by his ankles from the 30th floor of a hotel to scare him. And after that, Paul was then forced to leave town. So he headed to L.A. Oh, my gosh. I don't don't know anything really about loan sharks. Like, how do you even become a loan shark? Are you like a lone dolphin who becomes a loan shark? I don't get it. (laughs) But (laughs) the idea that people do this, but the 30th floor of a hotel, like, what if something goes wrong? I guess if you're in that business, like, you might lose a few people. You don't care if something goes wrong? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's wild. So once in L.A., Paul quickly picked up his old lavish lifestyle by getting a gold limo and starting up his pimping business again. This time, he insisted that his girls wore 1950s-style clothing because he had a personal obsession with that era. Paul's biggest dream and desire was to become a director, an actor, or a producer. He was willing to literally do anything to get his foot into the door of Hollywood. It's lofty goals really for someone who has no connections to this world, right? Like that right. has never really been in theater. <laughs> right. Knows has anyone. no background or training or experience in any of this. Right. Lone sharks have been after him. That's all we've got in his background. Like none of this makes sense. Like how how do you think this is just going to happen here, buddy? But Paul really wanted to live the celebrity glam life so badly, but literally no one was interested in anything he had to offer. Later in 1977, Paul realized he wasn't really going to make it in L.A. His quote-unquote escort business wasn't doing very well. The women really weren't bringing in enough money for him, so he goes back to Vancouver and continues working as a promoter. But his dreams of living this Hollywood lifestyle never really went away. When Paul walked into the Dairy Queen in 1978 and saw Dorothy Stratton, he was sure that she was his golden ticket, so to speak. Paul notices that Dorothy is young, but she resembles a mature woman, which is disgusting. Paul told his friend that day that he thought Dorothy could make him a lot of money. He asked one of Dorothy's coworkers for her number and then had the audacity to pick up the phone and call her later that night. I know people just did that in the 70s, right? They would just pick up the phone and dial somebody's phone number. But like, I cannot imagine, like, I don't know. Maybe I'm just jaded from living not in the 70s, but can you imagine asking for a stranger's phone number from someone else and then just calling them, like cold calling? (laughs) Absolutely not. That is just such a wild thing to me. I totally agree. Yeah. 
So Paul really starts this whole grooming process on Dorothy, but it was different than the way he had groomed these other women in the past that had done sex work for him. He treated Dorothy differently, kind of like high-class merchandise, because he really believed that she was something so special that she could really be what got him into Hollywood somehow. The people in Dorothy's life definitely noticed Paul's interest in her, and they felt like he was really a predator stalking his prey. But Paul was working his magic to charm the very young and naive Dorothy. When Paul was in public or around others, he was very egotistical and off-putting, but when he was alone with just him and Dorothy, he showed a different, softer side. Paul took advantage of the fact that Dorothy was oblivious to her potential. She saw herself as being kind of plain and she thought she had big hands. Paul's the one who started telling Dorothy how gorgeous she was and really made her realize that she had potential when it came to her beauty. Paul took it further by noticing what insecurities Dorothy had about herself and going out of his way to compliment her about the things that make her feel the most vulnerable. He helped her really see a different future than the one she had imagined herself having. Paul knew that Dorothy didn't have a lot growing up, so he lavished her with expensive gifts, clothes, and jewelry and let her hang out in his very luxe apartment, which he had adorned with nice furnishings, plants, and skylights. Keep in mind, although Dorothy was 18, as we said before, she was still in high school at this time. When it was time for her senior prom, Paul actually bought her a ruffled white gown and accompanied her as her date. And this is shocking in every way because at this time, Paul is 27 years old, attending a high school senior prom. That's just not a normal thing that a person does. Mm -mm. So once Dorothy had graduated from high school, Paul wasted no time getting her set up with a photographer named Hugh Meyer to have her very first professional portrait taken. We aren't sure exactly what the motive was for having these particular photos made, but we can assume that Paul was wanting to get Dorothy into modeling or he was easing her into this idea of just being in front of the camera and having photos taken. It was around this same time that Paul found out that Playboy was hosting a great playmate hunt. This was a contest to find a new playmate to be featured in the centerfold of the 25th anniversary issue. Playboy had a very specific image that they were after. They were looking for the girl next door type, which according to Hugh Hefner's vision, meant wholesome, fresh, young, and naive. And Dorothy was all of those things. About a month after the first photo shoot, Paul convinced Dorothy to let the same photographer come to his apartment and take nude photos of her. Dorothy had some reservations about it. She had never taken her clothes off for a stranger before, and it really took a lot of convincing before she agreed to do this. Dorothy kept this photo shoot a secret from her mom. According to a hairdresser that came along with the photographer, Dorothy was nervous and she clung to a scarf kind of as a way to preserve some degree of modesty. But after they got started, she started getting a little bit more comfortable and she was trying new and different poses. The photographer said that Dorothy was eager to please and even allowed him to pose her as he saw fit for the session. In the end, Paul decided not to send these photos to Playboy. He wanted the best chance of getting their attention, and he didn't know if Hugh Meyer's work was good enough. So Paul set Dorothy up with a different photographer instead, somebody who had worked with Playboy in the past, a photographer named Ken Honey. Using Ken could increase the chance that Playboy would take interest in Dorothy's photos. At first, Ken said that he wouldn't do the photo shoot because Dorothy was only 18, and at that time in Canada, the age of adulthood was 19, so technically Dorothy was underage, and Ken said that he would only do this photo shoot if Dorothy got her mom's permission. 
Dorothy finally did come clean to her mom about what she was doing, and she got her to sign off on the photo shoot. And then Ken Honey took her photos and sent them off to Playboy. And we're going to get into a lot more of this case after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. a new language can be challenging. But thanks to Babbel, you can now learn to be fluent in a new language in fun 15-minute sessions. Babbel is an amazing language learning app that sold more than 10 million subscriptions, and it's easy to see why. Babbel teaches you in these easy-to-digest, bite-sized language lessons that are designed for real-world use, so you can actually become fluent in a language and not just a few words here and there. Here in the U.S., we have to take foreign language in high school. I took two years of Spanish, and I remember nada. Literally, the word nada is about all I still retain. During those two years, I was just really memorizing words for test. And Babbel is nothing like this. What I love about Babbel is not only could I pick from one of 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German, but in addition to the lessons I can take, I can also access things like games, videos, stories, live classes, and even podcasts. With these 15-minute lessons, Babbel's working with you with the goal being to actually be able to use this new language. If you wanted to pick up a new skill in 2022, try Babbel and learn something that could actually help you in your day-to-day life. Plus, Babbel comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. Right now, when you purchase a three-month Babbel subscription, you'll get an additional three months for free. That's six months for the price of three. Just go to babbel.com and use promo code MOMS. That's B-A-B-B-E-L.com code MOMS. Babbel, language for life. I became a dog parent about a year ago, and I'm still a bit of a noob, as the kids say, so I thought it'd be great to learn more about our Havanese puppy, Remy, and I knew that using Embark would be the perfect way to do this because Embark is the most scientifically advanced dog DNA test that's available. Embark sent me a packet that included a swab for me to use on Remy, as well as packaging to send everything back to the lab. It was so easy to do, even a husband could do it. Swabbing Remy took just a second, and since everything is labeled and organized, I just closed the swab container, put it in the packaging, and put it in the mail. The whole process took me less than five minutes. I got an email that Remy's DNA was in the lab, and I'm looking forward to getting his results soon. I want to give my GSP pup Lila the world, and one way I can do that is with Embark. Did you know that up to 75% of dogs are at risk or a carrier for a genetic health condition? By having Lila swabbed, I'll learn more about her specific DNA and what complications I could need to possibly look out for. In addition to helping Lila on her canine journey, her results will actually be able to help other dogs too, since Embark is helping to push science forward to help all dogs. So not only is having Lila tested helping me find out more about her, but it's also helping bring us all closer to ending preventable diseases in dogs. Embark offers the most scientifically advanced dog DNA test. Their test analyzes more than 230,000 genetic markers. That's over twice as much genetic data than the competition. Right now, Embark has a limited time offer on their breed and health kit and purebred kit for our listeners. Go to EmbarkVet.com to get free shipping and save $50 with promo code MOMS. Visit EmbarkVet.com and use promo code MOMS to save $50 today. Now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about Dorothy Stratton having this first photo shoot with Ken Honey, and they were all set to send these photos off to Playboy. So when the Playboy magazine editor, Marilyn Grabowski, saw Dorothy's photos, she knew that Dorothy was really the perfect fit for the magazine. Marilyn later told ABC News that Dorothy was a, quote, total babe in the woods, end quote, and she'd never seen another playmate that was so naive and inexperienced. I really hate that they keep using this word naive, but that Me too. was like Me too. a compliment for this. I don't, I don't get it. it. 
it's very gross that that's like a word they use to describe what they're wanting here, isn't it? Well, I think, well, I do think that it's interesting because, of course, Playboy started, as we said, in the 1950s. So it was definitely a different time. I don't know that you would be able to start up a company or a magazine or anything right now in 2022 with standards like what Playboy had that they carried on for, you know, all this time for years and years and years, even in the 70s. And to say, like, you can only represent our company and work for us if you have X, Y, and Z going on about your physical appearance. That's not something that you see in 2022 because it's wrong and we don't do that as much anymore. You know, well, we don't – I'm not saying it doesn't happen. But it's definitely something that we as a society have tried to get away from doing. So it does seem kind of foreign to to hear that this was the way that it was in the 70s. But this is the way that it was in the 70s. So, yeah. you know, it's it's just a different time and a different world. Totally. So Dorothy wasn't used to thinking that she was beautiful, though, which gave her this innocence that Playboy was seeking for their models. Marilyn wanted to get Dorothy on a plane as soon as possible so she could come to L.A. for a test shoot. Dorothy had never even been on a plane before, so this was all extremely exciting for her. She was picked up in a limo and taken to the airport, and at this time, it's August of 1978. After doing test shoots in LA, Dorothy became one of the top 16 contenders for the great Playmate hunt, but Playboy felt that she wasn't quite ready for a centerfold shoot. She was just too shy. But the magazine and Hugh liked Dorothy a lot, so they offered her a job working as a bunny at the Playboy Club. She wasn't able to serve alcohol because she was just 18 years old at the time, so she was a door greeter. When Dorothy was first hired at the club, her physical appearance was checked over from head to toe to be sure that she fit the standard that Playboy was looking for. I like that I did not say quote unquote, but I think you could hear it in my voice. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's such a weird, it's just a weird thing to say. It is. So the company had very strict rules regarding the appearance of playmates and bunnies, and oftentimes these women were required to have breast augmentation or to cover up scars and other marks that were deemed unsightly. In Dorothy's case, no flaws were found, again with my air quotes. They just had to work on three things, her hair, maintaining a low weight, and changing her last name to something more universally appealing. Her given last name was Hoogstratton, and so it was just changed to Stratton. Dorothy's hair was trimmed, and she was put on an exercise regimen. Dorothy stayed in L.A. to be close to her new job, but Paul went back to Vancouver and returned to L.A. to visit often. But Paul and Dorothy continued to talk on the phone daily. Since Paul was the one to introduce Dorothy to this new lifestyle, she really leaned on him and really credited him for all the good things that were happening to her. Her career with Playboy continued to grow, and Hugh Hefner himself helped her get a temporary work permit since she wasn't a U.S. citizen. An actor named Colin Camp later told ABC News that Dorothy's beauty was breathtaking and that when you were with her, time would just stop. Do you know who's never said that about me? <laughs> Anyone. Anyone I've ever met. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, I wish time would stop and I could just get out of there. <laughs> I know. It must be nice. <laughs> All right. So meanwhile, Dorothy is working in L.A., and Paul began working with the owner of an L.A. nightclub called Destiny 2. Stephen Banerjee was looking for a way to make his nightclub stand out, and Paul had a suggestion. It was to start a male strip show that was intended for a female audience. Steve loved this idea. He thought it was great, and he created a show where the male dancers wore costumes that were based on the Playboy bunny suit, so they wore bow ties, cuffs, and spandex shorts. 
and these dancers became known as the Chippendales. Maybe you've heard of them. Kind of hard to believe this, but our friend Paul Snyder actually helped create the Chippendales, which I think is the craziest thing. I don't know why that's the craziest thing, but yeah, Yeah. it's just... And it's not even that random because I feel like it does make sense in the story, but it's kind of like, what? That's crazy. <laughs> like that Honest he actually to, had a yeah. hand in that. Honest to goodness, I've known about Chippendales, I mean, for a long time, but mostly through SNL whenever Chris Farley and Patrick Stewart did their sketch. But I thought it was Chippendales like Rescue Rangers until I was probably <laughs> 32. <laughs> I have no idea what I was like. Rescue Rangers, they would not be involved in this kind of nonsense. They're off saving the world. But yeah. I know what we're doing for your next birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Only if the Rescue Rangers are there. They can do this, but it has to be Rescue Rangers adjacent. Thank you. <laughs> so Paul, who was a promoter for other events already, began promoting the male dancers at wet underwear contests no. and Mm-mm. wet t-shirt nope. contests. I've never even heard of a wet underwear contest. I'm so upset by the fact that that happened. Like, take naive out of it for me. This is my new low. I hate this so much. I know. I know. And that's another thing. When I was um, researching, I had read this part about wet underwear contests and wet t-shirt contests. um, It made me laugh because I forgot that that was ever a thing. A wet t-shirt contest? All the time. Anytime you go anywhere, just be like... Just Just wet t-shirts everywhere. It'd be like the grocery store on a Sunday afternoon. People would be having a wet t-shirt concert. Yeah. Why do I keep saying concert? Contest. That was like all spring break was. Yeah. Yeah. That's another thing we don't do um, in in the 2020s. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Um, So Paul was still holding out hope, though, that Dorothy was going to make him rich, that she was going to get big, and this was going to pay off for him. In 1979, Dorothy had gained enough experience working with Playboy that they felt it was time for her big magazine debut. She was given the title of Miss August 1979, and immediately following the invitation to appear in this issue, Paul decides this is the perfect time to propose to her. Hmm. Hmm. So they got engaged, but they didn't get married right away, which made Paul really paranoid. And it made him say things that, you know, were constantly meant to try and manipulate Dorothy into going ahead and getting married as soon as possible. Dorothy confided in Hugh Hefner that Paul had proposed to her and she knew that Hugh Hefner had some reservations about Paul and she really just wanted his opinion. Hugh actually hired a PI to find out more about what kind of life Paul lived and if there were any risks to marrying him. The P.I. learned about Paul's pimp-like qualities, but when Hugh told Dorothy about this, it didn't really seem to faze her. Friends of Dorothy warned her that marrying Paul would be a bad thing, and she could experience setbacks with her career due to his controlling nature, but Dorothy just said that she couldn't see herself with anybody but Paul. At this point, Paul was acting as Dorothy's manager, and once he was in L.A. with her every day, he started to control other aspects of her life as well. For example, he forbid her from smoking, and he monitored her drinking. Interestingly, Paul told Dorothy that she could smoke a little bit of pot or do a little cocaine, but Dorothy wasn't interested in doing drugs, which, what, what, I don't understand this. You can't smoke and you can't drink, but you can do drugs. Yeah, here's, here's lines. Let's just do these. Wild. (laughs) Yeah. So in addition, Paul coached Dorothy on what exactly she should do if she were ever hit on by any other men at the Playboy Mansion. Hey, do you want to know another thing nobody's ever had to say to me? (laughs) (laughs) I've never had to have this type of coaching. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) 
He told her to be very wary of men who make her promises because they would just, quote, use her up, which is hilarious because that's exactly what he himself is trying to do. He's trying to literally use her for his own gain. He is all he sees in her is dollar signs over her head. That's like just so disgusting. And that he is now telling her like to watch out for other people doing this to her when he's really the one doing this to her. Right. So the topic of what to do if Hugh Hefner himself wanted to sleep with Dorothy also came up. But according to those who lived at the mansion during this time, it doesn't appear that Dorothy and Hef ever had a romantic or sexual relationship at all. Hugh himself said that there was a friendship between them, but it was not romantic. As time went on and Dorothy became more involved in the Playboy world, Paul started to feel more and more left out. It was common for playmates and bunnies to leave their husbands and boyfriends out of Playboy-related activities, which makes sense since having a husband there would really ruin your vibe of a young, fresh, naive. Right. Um, That is definitely in quotes. (laughs) This, of course, really bugs Paul. He wants to get close to Hugh Hefner so badly, thinking it's going to propel him into the inner circles of Hollywood. On the rare occasion that Paul was invited to the mansion, it was awkward, and he really stuck out like a sore thumb. Everyone around him pretty much hated him and thought he was gross. He would try to corner women in the mansion's water-filled grotto and make out with them, and his demeanor was really just offensive. One time, he was even kicked out of the mansion after being caught with a girl in the grotto. He was told he was not welcome back unless he was with Dorothy. There's another thing I'm glad we don't have in 2022. Hugh Hefner's grotto. I remember (laughs) seeing that. (laughs) On everything, E! News was like yes. always in the grotto, filming from the grotto all the freaking time. So gross. <laughs> so gross. Not enough chlorine in the world. So on June 1st, 1979, <laughs> Paul finally got his wish and he married Dorothy in Vegas, despite Hugh and despite everyone telling Dorothy not to go through with this. Dorothy really felt like she'd been backed in a corner and that she couldn't say no to marrying Paul. She still believed that he was the only reason she was so successful and felt like she owed him something, which granted he probably is where she first made that first step, obviously. But after that, it's all on her own. Like, that's all you, girl. The next month, Dorothy was sent to Canada for a promotional tour for the Miss August issue. But Playboy said that Paul was not allowed to be with her and that the marriage had to be kept a secret. For months, Paul continues to obsess over Dorothy's career, and he was very, very proud of himself and where he was able to get her at this time. Paul considered himself to be a star in his own right for having discovered one. He even bought a new Mercedes and put a vanity plate on it, and the plate said, Star 80. He is really, really full of himself. He is. How embarrassing. Like, it's that so is embarrassing. So, oh, it just makes me cringe, like of all things <laughs> in the world, like no star 80 for you or your wife right for me. <laughs> so paul would talk like he thought dorothy was really going to be the next playmate of the year and he always spoke in we terms things like when we make it big we're gonna have it all that sort of thing so dorothy really didn't like the way that he was speaking about her and her career um or their future and she thought it was really too much pressure to perform and worried that if she failed she would be failing not only herself, but she would also be failing star 80 himself, Paul. But still, Dorothy kept quiet. She still didn't want to offend him after he's helped her find this new life in the first place. In November of 1979, Dorothy was featured on the TV special Playboy's Roller Disco and Pajama Party. She did <laughs> <Mandy>. <laughs> 
by December, you could be halfway there. <laughs> if you stick with those roller skates, girl. It's a new goal. It's a new goal. I didn't know, <laughs> I didn't know I could develop new goals, but I just did. <laughs> so she did so well on this TV special that the studio started booking her for other roles. Hugh Hefner thought it was a pretty big deal that Dorothy had been scouted for acting roles, so she became one of his most favorite bunnies. After the TV special came out, Dorothy's career took off. She was instantly cast in episodes of TV shows before the year was even through, and this was in November. So really just in the next few weeks, she was getting offers to be acting on TV show episodes. Hugh then decided that Dorothy would make the perfect playmate of the year for 1980 due to all of the success that she had achieved in such a small um, time frame, you know, as this small town farm girl. Dorothy began shooting photos for Playmate of the Year in December of 1979, but the news wouldn't be announced until April. Dorothy was the first Canadian woman to be named Playmate of the Year. At the time, Playboy was sure that Dorothy would be the biggest star they ever had. Things for Dorothy started changing very quickly, and by January of 1980, she had a full cast of people behind her, including agents, promoters, coaches, managers, accountants, and more. All of these things had been Paul's arena before, and he didn't like that Playboy had now taken over Dorothy's career management and a lot of her life. He wanted all of that control for himself. Over the next several months, Paul completely lost control over everything that Dorothy was a part of, and the desperation to keep himself relevant in her life grew and grew. He told Dorothy that if he couldn't be her manager anymore, then he should still have complete control over her finances and any movie deals. But Dorothy said, that's ridiculous, and told him that her agent and manager were going to be handling those things from now on. Paul, in his desperation, then suggested that Dorothy use the money she earned from being Playmate of the Year, which was $200,000, and buy a house with it, of course, for both of them to live in. Even though Paul, you know, had looked at houses, he tried to show Dorothy a lot of options, she just wasn't willing to commit to buying a house with him. At this time, she was really starting to become more suspicious that Paul, you know, only had a desire to buy a house with her as another way that he could kind of have this anchor to her. You know, he could sink his claws into her and make it harder for her to separate herself from him. Before the end of January, Dorothy received her biggest acting role offer yet. It was a role in one of critically acclaimed filmmaker Peter Bogdanovich's upcoming movies. Peter was a frequent guest at the mansion, and he actually had met Dorothy back in October of 1979, and just like everybody else who met her, he instantly took a liking to her. In 1971, Peter had directed and co-written The Last Picture Show, which was a coming-of-age drama starring a huge cast with people like Ben Johnson, Jeff Bridges, Cloris Leachman, and Sybil Shepard. The movie was critically acclaimed and ended up receiving eight Academy Award nominations, including one for Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Adapted Screenplay. Ben Johnson and Cloris Leachman won Oscars for their supporting roles in that movie. Following The Last Picture Show, Peter directed more critically acclaimed movies like What's Up, Doc? and Paper Moon. He was a pretty big deal in Hollywood. So at some point in January, this director asked Dorothy to be in his next movie, which was titled They All Laughed. The plot of this movie, according to IMDb, is, quote, New York's Odyssey Detective Agency is hired by two different clients to follow two women suspected of infidelity. Ladies' man John Russo, played by Ben Gazzara, trails Angela Niotis, played by Audrey Hepburn, the elegant wife of a wealthy Italian industrialist, 
while Charles Rutledge, played by John Ritter, and Arthur Brodsky, played by Blaine Novak, followed Dolores Martin, the beautiful young wife of a jealous husband. Their respective cases are complicated when John falls for Angela and Charles falls for Dolores. End quote. Basically, lots of infidelity, detectives run amiss in New York City, right? (laughs) Yes. A lot going on. So after reading for this part, Peter felt that Dorothy was perfect and he offered her the role. Filming was scheduled to begin in late March in New York City. Paul, of course, wanted to go to New York, but Dorothy told him that the set was closed to anyone that was not working on it, so he couldn't go. Dorothy went to New York alone and stayed in a hotel room at first. But then things took a turn. Dorothy actually began having an affair with Peter, and she ended up moving into his place. The two of them really kept things professional and didn't behave inappropriately on the set, but Paul, who was still in L.A. at that time, sensed that something was going on. When Dorothy first arrived in New York, she would tell Paul that, you know, she was too tired to talk on the phone, and when Paul would say, I love you to her, Dorothy wouldn't say it back. After about a month in New York, she stopped taking his calls entirely. Paul suspected that Dorothy was having an affair with Peter, but had no way of proving it. In late April, Dorothy took a break from shooting and flew back to Los Angeles. It had finally been publicly announced that she was Playmate of the Year. She attended a Playboy luncheon, and she also went on the Johnny Carson show. While she was in L.A., she did not see Paul. Then, Dorothy headed to Canada for a promotional tour. Paul wanted to see Dorothy, but she said she needed more freedom. He did not like hearing this, and he was really angry. So Dorothy said he could come see her in Vancouver during the second week of May. Paul ended up flying to Vancouver, and he checked into the same hotel as Dorothy, even though she asked him not to. They both later told people about their meeting and gave pretty much the same account. Dorothy said that she needed freedom, they argued, and they cried. Paul added to his form of the story that they made up and had sex But Dorothy never said if that actually happened or not. Dorothy ended up ending her promo tour early, and she returned to New York to finish filming They All Laughed. At this point, she barely spoke to Paul at all, and when she did, it was as if her responses were scripted. And that's because they were. Her lawyer and her managers had actually kind of advised her not to speak to Paul about certain things. Um, Many of Paul and Dorothy's conversations had to do with money and finances because naturally Paul knows that, you know, without Dorothy's money, he can't really make it. He's banking on Dorothy. Just that's what he's been doing this entire time. But of course, since he was her husband, he knew that he would be entitled to half of her assets in the case of a divorce. But at some point... Dorothy's management team had her set up with a corporation called Dorothy Stratton Enterprises, which meant that most of her assets, at least the ones that she had been earning through her work with Playboy, they now belong to her corporation. Mm. So as such, Paul would not automatically be given 50% of Dorothy's assets because they are now safely behind, you know, the safety of this corporation. So in late June, Dorothy sent Paul this letter saying, you know, hey, we are now separated both physically and financially. And she closed the bank accounts that she had jointly with Paul and started having her business manager send Paul money, which is just like, oh, man, like, you know, there's no question. It's over between them now. She's definitely saying, like, there is nothing more here. Like, we are separating in every way. With Dorothy gone, Paul started grooming another woman named Patty Lorman. She was a 17-year-old girl who worked at a grocery store and modeled on the side. Paul met Patty at an auto show and hoped that he could make her into the next Dorothy Stratton. 
He taught her how to walk like Dorothy, dress like Dorothy, and do her hair like Dorothy. Eventually, Paul moved Patty into the West Los Angeles house that he once shared with Dorothy. At this time, the roommate Stephen was still living there. At one point, Paul tried to promote Patty to Playboy, but of course, they pretty much laughed in his face. They were not interested in working with him. They couldn't stand him the first time they had to deal with him. So, of course, they were like, absolutely not. We don't care who you've discovered. Right. (laughs) So in mid-July, Paul knew that filming for They All Laughed was about to be wrapping up, and he wasn't able to talk to Dorothy because of all her attorneys, but he usually was aware of at least what she was up to. So at this point, he decided that he wanted to prove that Dorothy was having this affair, and that way, at the very least, he would have some leverage in the divorce. Paul hired a private detective named Mark Goldstein to find out if Dorothy was for sure having an affair with Peter. Mark would often go to Paul's place to kind of discuss, you know, the things that he was finding. It was at this point that Paul completely lost it. He would start calling people and crying about how he couldn't even see Dorothy anymore, and he wrote notes to Dorothy that he never even sent her. The girl that Paul was grooming, Patty, later told ABC News that Paul was very distraught and sad during this time. She said, quote, There were times when he talked to me and would start crying. He would sit on the couch and play his guitar, and he had written songs to Dorothy, end quote. This, that poor girl having to, like, sit oh through gosh. any of that. That has to be so confusing. Like, yeah. Whatever relationship they had and then – I don't know. That's a lot to take in. It is. And especially at 17, like, that is very unusual. Mm-hmm. Uh, very unusual situation. So in late July, Paul found out that after the movie wrapped, Dorothy moved in with Peter, who lived in Bel Air, which was the place that Paul had always dreamed of living. So that was just, like, another, like, shot to the heart for him. Dorothy and Peter – planned to marry once the divorce from Paul was finalized. On July 31st, a distraught Paul borrowed a gun from a friend and went to the place that Dorothy shared with Peter. And at this point, he actually has in mind that he is going to kill her. Paul waited outside the house, but they never showed up. So that night he left. And soon after, Paul's friend asked for the gun back. But that wasn't the end of things. And we're going to get into the rest of this story after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. If you're looking for high-performance beauty and skincare products that are made with clean, skin-loving ingredients, look no further than Strive Cosmetics. Thrive makes products that I can feel great wearing, like their Brilliant Eye Brightener. You guys know we had the chance to be on TV this week, and the first thing I reach for when getting ready is my Brilliant Eye Brightener. It's a cream-to-powder highlighter stick that both brightens and gives you an instant eye lift. It's also very forgiving and easy to use, so I knew even I could put it on and look great, even though I am a makeup novice. The stick gave me the perfect wash of color and glow and gives me a vibrant, well-rested look in 13 shimmering shades. I sometimes wear it without any other makeup because it makes me look awake and refreshed, even when I'm not. You'll also want to check out Thrive's Overnight Sensation Brightening Sleep Mask. It's an overnight mask that's inspired by the spa, and it's packed with antioxidants to give you smoother, brighter, and more hydrated skin. I love the cooling sensation when I put it on and how bright and radiant my skin is after just one night. You can't go wrong with this sleeping mask. Plus, buying Thrive Cosmetics means you're part of a bigger cause, thanks to their Bigger Than Beauty mission. With this mission, for every product that's purchased, Thrive Cosmetics will donate to help women thrive. There are tons of places they donate to, including helping women who are emerging from homelessness or veterans during or after their service. 
Now is a great time to try Thrive Cosmetics for yourself. Right now, you can get 15% off your first order when you visit thrivecosmetics.com moms. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash moms for 15% off your first order. I'm notorious in our house for picking up fresh fruits and veggies with every intention of the world of using them before they go bad. Unfortunately, that doesn't always happen, and that's why Daily Harvest is perfect for me. I'm forever wanting to add more fruits and veggies to my diet, but if it's not easy, it's probably not going to happen. Thankfully, Daily Harvest is not only easy, it's also delicious. Daily Harvest delivers straight to your door delicious harvest bowls, flatbreads, smoothies, and more, all built on organic fruits and vegetables. Plus, it's conveniently fresh in your freezer until you're ready to eat it. One of my favorites is the banana and cacao bites because it tastes like a dessert while being loaded with nutritious ingredients. One bite-sized ball of these cookie dough-like creations is all you need to satisfy that late-night sweet tooth without compromising on nutrition. Daily Harvest takes minutes to prepare and never uses preservatives, added sugar, or artificial anything, and that goes for everything. And there's stuff for every meal, including snacks and desserts. Speaking of desserts, I love their strawberry and rich ripple berry compote. It's like the most perfect strawberry ice cream with a delicious berry swirl, but made of stuff that's actually good for me, so it's a treat for my taste buds and body. Daily Harvest makes it easy to feel good about what I'm doing for myself and the planet. Go to dailyharvest.com slash moms to get up to $40 off your first box. That's dailyharvest.com slash moms for up to $40 off your first box. dailyharvest.com slash moms. Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about Paul and Dorothy, and we learned that Paul had borrowed this gun and actually planned to kill Dorothy because he was so distraught that she was planning to divorce him and leave him desolate. Meanwhile, Dorothy was also not really having a great time. 
She was still doing Playmate promotions and still getting offers to act in big movies, but she was really preoccupied with feeling guilty about Paul to the point that she really couldn't, you know, enjoy her own success, which seems like such a mind manipulation from Paul to make her feel bad where she's just not even able to let that go. So everyone in Dorothy's life is telling her to just let the attorneys handle everything, but Dorothy was determined to see to it that Paul was financially secure after their divorce. Dorothy called Paul and asked him to meet her for lunch on August 8th. He said yes, and they made plans to meet at Paul's place. Paul was under the impression that this meeting was about more than it actually was. He thought maybe that he and Dorothy were going to be getting back together. He told his friends how this time was going to be different, and he would show Dorothy that he had changed. He told his friends, quote, I've really got to vacuum the rug. The queen is coming back, end quote. On August 8th, Dorothy goes over to Paul's, but of course this meeting did not go as expected. Dorothy did not want to get back together with him at all. In fact, she admitted to having this affair with Peter and said she'd come over to discuss a financial settlement for the divorce. Paul was crushed. Before Dorothy leaves, she tells Paul that she would call him on the 10th to finalize this settlement. In the days after the meeting, Paul's behavior became super weird. He once again became obsessed with getting a gun because he couldn't borrow his friend's gun again. Getting a gun for Paul wasn't very easy because he wasn't an American citizen, so he can't exactly just go to any gun shop and buy a gun. But he was determined to get his hands on a gun, and he continued to look for one anyway. When August 10th rolled around, Paul waited for Dorothy's call, but it never came in. And this, of course, upset him, but she did call on the 11th, and they made plans to meet a few days later on the 14th at 11.30 a.m. Both Peter and Hugh Hefner told Dorothy that she should not go meet Paul alone. It was not a good idea and that he was dangerous. Peter actually found out that Paul had hired this PI to be following Dorothy around and told her about it, but Dorothy wasn't really bothered by it because she didn't think that Paul would ever do anything to her. Unfortunately, Dorothy assumed incorrectly. On August 13th, Paul finally did find a gun. It was a 12-gauge shotgun that he found in the classified ads. That night, he went over to his friend's house, and he was in a very cheerful and happy mood, which his friend noticed because Paul had been so down and depressed in the recent weeks. On August the 14th, Dorothy went to the house that she used to share with Paul for their planned meeting. She arrived at around 12.30 p.m., and Paul's roommates weren't home when she got there. One of the roommates, Patty, actually left because she knew that Dorothy was coming over, and another one of the roommates was at work. A short time later, the PI that Paul hired called him just to see how things were going. I assume that he knew that he was meeting Dorothy that day. Right. So Paul told him everything is fine, but when the PI tried to call back again later that day, Paul didn't answer. Later that evening, one of the roommates, Stephen, got home from work and he noticed that Patty was home and Paul's car was there and Dorothy's car was also there. Since Dorothy's car was there and when he got inside, Paul's bedroom door was closed, Patty and Stephen both assumed that Paul had reconciled with Dorothy and the two of them were just hanging out in his bedroom together. Stephen and Patty hung out upstairs and watched TV for several hours, but shortly before midnight, they decided they should check on things since it had been such a long time and they hadn't seen Paul or Dorothy emerge from the bedroom. So they went downstairs and knocked on Paul's door, but nobody answered. Stephen made the decision to open Paul's bedroom door and what he and Patty saw when they looked inside was a nightmare. Paul and Dorothy were both naked and both deceased. 
Patty described the scene as looking like something in a horror movie. Police arrived and they started investigating right away. Dorothy was found laying across the bottom of Paul's bed with her knees on the carpet and Paul was face down lying parallel to the foot of the bed with the shotgun under his body. An autopsy later revealed that Dorothy had been raped, although it's unclear whether that happened before or after her death. Evidence suggests that it happened after she died because her body was moved after she was killed. Bloody handprints were found on Dorothy's body and strands of her hair were found in Paul's hand. No one alive knows exactly what happened between Paul and Dorothy that afternoon, but what we do know is that Dorothy went over there to offer Paul a settlement of $7,500, which is equal to about $25,000 today. Dorothy's purse was found upstairs in the living room with $1,100 in cash inside, likely a down payment of the total settlement. The fact that her purse was upstairs meant that she did spend at least some time up there before she was either taken downstairs or went willingly downstairs with Paul. We will never know what happened in these final moments that ultimately led to the murder-suicide. Hugh Hefner was devastated over the loss of Dorothy. According to the Village Voice, Hefner and his family went into seclusion from the press. They gave a very simple statement, and that was it for months. Sis Rundle, former Playboy social secretary, told ABC News, quote, Hef was never the same. Part of him died. Part of all of us died because Dorothy was so special to us, end quote. The Hollywood community was sad to lose such a star. Although Dorothy's career was only just beginning, it was clear that she was really special. Her former roommate, Stephen Kushner, told ABC News, quote, Had she been privileged to live out her life and her career, she would have been a star. She would have been a Julia Roberts. She would have been a Reese Witherspoon. But over and above that, she was a great person and she gave herself to everybody that she met. There will never be another like her. Dorothy was something special, always will be, end quote. Following Dorothy's death, Peter felt the need to take care of Dorothy's family. According to Hollywood Life, Peter said, quote, If I'd married Dorothy, this would be my family, so I wasn't going to stop being their family because she was dead. End quote. In 1981, Peter released They All Laughed, but it didn't do well, so the movie ended up being pulled from the theaters. Peter decided to buy the film from the studio and distribute it himself, but... That was also a disaster, and Peter ended up losing about $5 million. He later filed for bankruptcy and didn't make another movie until 1985. Instead, he spent his time writing a book about Dorothy and her murder. Also in 1981, a TV movie about Dorothy's murder was released. It was called Death of a Centerfold, and it starred Jamie Lee Curtis as Dorothy and Bruce Weitz as Paul Snyder. In 1983, the movie Star 80 was released. It was based on Teresa Carpenter's Village Voice article called Death of a Playmate. Bob Fosse directed it, and Mariel Hemingway played Dorothy, and Eric Roberts played Paul. In 1984, Peter released a book called The Killing of the Unicorn. According to ABC News, in the book, Peter, quote, blamed Hefner and the culture of Playboy for contributing to Dorothy's death. He also accused Hefner of making unwanted advances on her at the Playboy Mansion in 1978. During a 1985 press conference, Hefner said, quote, Dorothy's tragic death was motivated not in any way by her association with Playboy, but clearly by the breakup of her marriage because of the affair with Peter. Hefner also said that following Dorothy's murder, Peter had sex with Dorothy's mom and seduced Dorothy's younger sister, Louise, who was 13 when Dorothy was killed, by the way. Hefner added that Peter had paid for plastic surgery so Louise could look more like Dorothy. Oof. Yeah. 
Geraldo Rivera later interviewed Hugh Hefner and asked, quote, for the record, did you seduce Dorothy? And Hefner replied, no, I didn't. And for the record, I never tried to. In April 1985, Louise sued Hugh Hefner for slander over those comments about Peter seducing her and paying for the plastic surgery. And she said that, you know, she's only met Hugh Hefner twice and barely even knew him and said she didn't understand why he would say something like that. Louise said Peter had always helped her family members and, you know, helped them get through the pain and sorrow about losing Dorothy. And there was nothing more to it than that. In August, Louise dropped the lawsuit, though, and Peter and Hefner made peace publicly. Also in 1985, Peter's first movie since They All Laughed was released. The movie was called Mask, and it starred Cher, Eric Stoltz, and Sam Elliott. On December 30th, 1988, eight years after Dorothy's murder, 49-year-old Peter married Dorothy's sister Louise, who was 20 years old at the time. So as it turns out, Hugh Hefner was not lying about those things that he said, most likely. I mean, I guess it's possible that allegedly, he made that up and allegedly. then later on they got together. But um, to me, it sounds like that was probably all true. Um, so Louise's mom, uh, Nellie, who of course is also Dorothy's mom, told a local TV station that she had not been informed about this wedding. And she said, quote, I've cried before and I cry now because I've lost another daughter, end quote. In 2001, Peter and Louise divorced, but they continued working and living together. Even in 2020, Peter still lived with Louise and her mom in Los Angeles. On January 6th of this year, 2022, Peter passed away at the age of 82. And that is the story for this week. Um, it's a very, very sad, very tragic story about um, a young woman who really didn't ask for any of the thing, you know, didn't ask for any of this and had a very, very tragic outcome. Um, I do want to give a quick shout out, though, to this article um, called Death of a Playmate that we mentioned just a couple minutes ago. It was written by Teresa Carpenter, and it was first released in November of 1980. Um, but it's still one of the most thorough sources of information about the story that we could find, and it was used as a source of information for this episode so we will link that in the show notes of course as always with all of the other sources and um, check that article out if you want more on this it was a super lengthy super involved article very very well done it was written in 1980 which I always think is so cool to go back and read pieces that were actually written at the time right um, and read them now today so yeah definitely worth checking that one out yeah man super sad story I remember there being a playmate that had been murdered but I didn't I uh, quite honestly didn't know Dorothy's name. I didn't know really the connection with Hugh as far as him um, trying to hire, you know, hiring a private investigator and all this stuff. Like people seem to be concerned in her life and had good reason to be concerned. And for the thing that really struck or stuck out to me is whenever you were talking about his private investigator coming back and checking in on him and then checking on him later that day, like that just seems to me that like people people were concerned and you know something else was going on so super sad um all the way around she had her whole life and career to look forward to and you know just just sad just really sad definitely okay so we will turn the page and move on to last thing before we go then and we can kind of uh, lighten things up a little bit before we leave you for the week um melissa i thought it would be fun to talk about some 70s things because because why not? We're talking about the 70s, sure. and mm-hmm. we were both not alive in the 70s. So what could be more fun than talking about things we know nothing about? I've never felt younger, except for whenever <laughs> my son says, were you born in the 1900s? And I have to yeah. say, yes. I was. Yes, I was. <laughs> okay, oh. so Melissa, 
Uh-huh. I think we did this where you pulled some things because you're the pop culture queen. So you're mm-hmm. going to tell us some fun pop culture things. And then I looked up what things cost in 1970s. And we'll go from there. So Mandy, any idea of what one of the biggest, the biggest movie that came out in the 70s, like over the entire thing, the one that grossed the most money in the 70s? When you think of the 70s in movies, what would you think? Like, let me give you a couple choices. Jaws, uh, Star Wars, uh, The Mask. No, The Mask came out in the 80s. So you can go ahead and rule that one out. But Star Wars or Jaws, what do you think is the biggest movie in the 80s? 70s. I think it was Jaws. Star Wars. Star Wars what? was the biggest movie. Yeah. Aww. Which makes sense because we're not seeing a lot of Jaws 2, you know, yeah. Flight of the whatever. Yeah. <laughs> flight of the whatever. I don't know I what I'm talking I think there was about. a Jaws 2 though and a 3. Oh, there was. But there wasn't. Like Star Wars, like now we have the Mandalorian. Oh, yeah. And just yeah, like yeah. so many things. So don't many Don't come things. for me, Star Wars fans. I'm, I'm just not there yet. My son has <laughs> a bunch of like Baby Yoda things. I tried to get him to watch the Mandalorian not interested but he likes baby yoda like everyone so now we have like a billion of those things but um yeah so that was number one in the 70s you have any facts for me yeah so um i'm gonna ask you a couple of uh, uh, we're gonna do this kind of like a little quiz thing too i'm gonna give you multiple choice all right so how much do you think a hershey's chocolate bar cost in 1975 99 oh sorry i was gonna give you choices it's fine go ahead go ahead okay (laughs) 99 cents, 59 cents, or 15 cents? 15 cents. You're right. It was 15 cents. My dad always talks about having like a nickel and buying candy. So I that's know. why I immediately went to five cents. A whole, I would be in trouble if, if Hershey bars only cost 15 cents. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're <laughs> they're not expensive enough right now, I have to right. say, like to deter me from buying right? them. Yeah. <laughs> Mandy, there were two huge songs that came out in the 70s. One was by Barry Manilow and one was by the Allman Brothers. Do you know what these two songs were? Huge hits. Um, Ramblin' Man. Okay. Is that one of them? No, it's not. Oh, dang it. <laughs> is it Melissa? Yes. <laughs> it is. And what was the okay. other? Um, Barry Manilow. Uh-huh. Is it Mandy? Is it Mandy? Yes. <laughs> I like how quickly you got mine and you're, you're like, huh, oh not a clue. <laughs> yeah, they were both 70s songs. We were named after well, 70s Well, that worked out nicely. Songs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, so on the same line, um, we're going to stick with the junk food theme here for a minute because I know that we both love a one, the wonderfully delicious masterpiece that is a McDonald's Big Mac. Absolutely. How much do you think it cost in 1974? Was Ooh, it 99 God. cents, uh-huh. 65 cents, or 40 cents? 40 cents? No, that's what I thought too. It's actually 65 cents. Okay, rip off. No, I'm just kidding. You could a charge quite Mac? a bit for that. I oh, know. So right? Good. Yeah, 65 Why cents. Why did you though? tell me that? Oh, man. Boring. Well, what are you going to do? Get a time machine? <laughs> no, no, but I want to just go get one now. Oh, I want to go Ditch get the one. show and go get four one. Four times that for it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Mandy, this is a pop culture thing that is kind of random, but I heard it in my car one day and could not believe that it was a real song. In 1972, singer and guitarist Chuck Berry's only number one single was a live recording of a raunchy New Orleans tune called. You ready for this? I'm not even going to give you a choice to guess because you'll never guess this. <laughs> this is real. It's called My Dingaling, 
and it's exactly what you think about <laughs> it's about. And it's people live singing my dingling like whenever no. it was playing. Yes, when it was playing on the radio like um one of the satellite channels, I was like this is a real like I had to literally when I got to the gas station, I pulled over and googled it cuz I was like there's no way my dingling is a real song. <laughs> a real song. It was a number 1 song for him in 1972. I'm going to look that up whenever we get off of this. I I <laughs> yeah, guys don't do it. Don't do it. I'm telling you. It's you can't unhear that song and it's very happy a very happy song wow kind of want to sing along to it <laughs> okay sing it yeah go ahead <laughs> okay all right so um let's see i know you don't like coffee but how much do you think Eight. two pounds of coffee a two pound can how much did it cost in 1970 was it two dollars and 49 cents 69 cents or one dollar and 79 cents a dollar and seventy nine cents. Sixty nine. Yeah, you're good. Really? It. Oh, a dollar seventy nine for a two pound oh. can of coffee. That seems so. I feel like like a rip off. <laughs> I mean, it kind of does actually. Five I don't cents. know. I want to run the inflation calculator on that and see how that stacks up to today. I feel oh like it's gosh. cheaper today. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Okay. So this will be my last one. Um, this. What was the original name for a crock pot? It sold over a hundred million units in nineteen seventy one. You ready? I'll give you some choices. Let me think for a second. Um, the creamery, the beanery, or the genery? What? There is no way it was any of those. <laughs> the creamery, the beanery, or the genery? The beanery. Yeah, I don't even know what those other two things were that I was doing, but the beanery. I guess, oh, because I guess you could cook beans in it? Is that what the deal? Yeah, Because it was a slow cooker, thinking. so you could easily cook beans? Is yeah. that what it really, is a crock pot really a bean cooker and I just never knew? Well, I don't know, but it was called the beanery. I've never, like, <laughs> it was such a moment. It, like, my dingling was going crazy when I heard, wait, nope, that's not a thing. <laughs> If I had a dingling, it would have been confused. <laughs> wow, yeah. Um, all right. The beanery. I feel yeah. like that's that's gonna be the name of the coffee stand I open one day. The beanery. Oh, see, that would be good. Oh, that would actually make sense, right? Yeah, we played it all together. Mm-hmm. There you go. Put it together. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, I think that's it for this week. There you go. Now yeah, we, we, we know we know some more about the seventies than than we did originally. Yeah. Congratulations, everyone. (laughs) You made it through another one of these. Yay. Yay. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, we will be back next week. Same time, same place. New story. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.